This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Well, it has been some time since we've been able to be together, and I have really missed all of you. I mean, it really is a shame that uh, I can't just be an automaton or create some kind of duplicate of myself to fill in when I need to take a break. I'm still working on that in the background. I'm not going to lie to you. Prospects are not good of me getting that one done. But, you know, it's good to take a little break every now and then. But I do genuinely miss being able to speak with my audience when that takes place. And so I'm glad that you're here, whether you're watching us on Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, however... Uh, we appreciate you being here. We appreciate you making this show a part of your day. And holy cow, do we have a ton to talk about today. My, my absence, apparently, uh, as it usually seems to do, the, the news just kind of piles up. And now that we're only doing two shows a week, this is our first show, of course, with the new schedule. Uh, now that we're only doing two shows a week, I imagine it's going to feel like that every time. So I'm going to try to, operative word, try to, be a little bit more brief. I, that doesn't come easy to me being a minister, but I'm going to do the best that I absolutely can to be able to bring you as much news as possible, especially the state and local news as we can. And one of the biggest news stories is that Governor Ivey, actually not technically Governor Ivey, the state of Alabama as a whole is being sued because of the mask mandate. So this is interesting. A real estate agent, apparently from Scottsboro, is the one that is filing the suit. He, in combination with two other people, have filed this suit. Now, the lawsuit claims a couple of things, and we're going to go through each one of them. Uh, it, it's sort of a lawsuit on multiple, multiple facets. It's saying that the mask mandate is incorrect on a number of levels. Now, keep in mind, this is not a criminal procedure suit. This is going to be a civil suit, which is why there's a, uh, you know, it's they're being sued over this. But even though it's a, essentially a civil suit, it's interesting because that might very well be the catalyst that allows or sets some kind of precedent that executives in, in governors, uh, Governor Ivey's position are not allowed to do things like this. Now, if you are at all interested in seeing my take on the mask mandate and its legality, I actually have a video that addresses specifically that from a previous episode. I, I put out a, a standalone video for that one. It's called Governor Ivey's Mandate is Illegal or something to that effect. I'll, I'll be sure to add a card and, and put the link uh, up here. But suffice it to say that it's interesting that me being a non-lawyer, I looked through part of this lawsuit, and apparently the lawsuit that they're filing is actually not much different than what I was saying. So that was interesting, but the lawsuit does claim that it was illegally adopted. In other words, Governor Ivey lacked the authority to put this mask mandate in place. And its primary argument is that it argues that the state, state health officer cannot have more power than the state health board and said that the board must give notice. So essentially... Because the order came through Dr. Scott Harris, who is Alabama's state officer, state health officer. Well, he is the executive that presides over the state health board. And the state health board has regulations on this kind of thing. So they can't just make up a brand new policy and say, okay, every business in the state has to be, compli has to be in compliance with this in three days. 
Like, it's not a thing that the state board can do. If they all of a sudden decided to change something like, you know, the temperature that your dishwasher had to be, or they changed the standards on some other kind of health code, they can't just say that and expect it to be done overnight. Now, granted, this is an interesting conundrum because one of the distinctions here, and this is one of my arguments that I brought up, is that there is a, a stark distinction between a private business and a individual as far as the law goes now. Now, personally, I don't think there should be any difference. I think that if it's a private business, it should be viewed as the same as a private individual. But the reason that that distinction is important in this case is because they're essentially equating a mandatory blanket mask mandate for the entire state and its citizens. I mean, even if you're just walking around in a public space outside in the sun, this mandate is still technically in effect. Now, is anybody going to actually arrest you for not having a mask on when it's, I don't know, 98 freaking degrees in Alabama? Probably not. But whether somebody would actually try to enforce that or not, and whether or not the law is on the books, are two completely different matters. And so because of that, there is a odd distinction here, because usually the law does view just a business that is open to the public very different than, for example, your house. Like, those are, are very distinct things in the law. I don't think that they necessarily should be, but the fact remains that they are. And so, basically, the argument is this entity, the State Health Board, that deals directly with businesses that serve the, pro, uh, the, the public, that that is the, the catch-22. In other words, that if the State Board of Health does not even have this power and they derive their power from the office of the Alabama State Health Officer, Dr. Scott Harris then how is it possible that Dr. Harris has that power? Uh, it's an interesting legal argument. It's one that I didn't think of. But I am interested to see what their answer to that is. Because it seems to me that the only argument that you could make, in effect, is that, well, actually the State Board of Health does have that authority. And if so, then that's kind of terrifying. I hope that's not the way the court rules. But if the court does indeed rule that way, you could certainly make the legal argument that the State Board of Health could say to a business uh, that they, they can just change the standards on you basically overnight. And the reason that that is so dangerous, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but the reason that that is so incredibly dangerous is let's say that there was a, I don't know, a person that worked for the State Board of Health that just had a personal vendetta against a local business owner and just happened to know that his particular restaurant engaged in some kind of practice, and he could just sort of, under the guise of it being a health code update, just go ahead and say, yeah, um, we're going to need you to do it this way now, and then when he doesn't comply within, you know, the next day, because there's no regulation on the State Board of Health giving notice, he can just shut that person down. Now, again, that, that's an extreme example, and I'm sure that there's more to it than that. I, I don't want to oversimplify it. But my point is you can understand why that protection of saying you have to give notice is there. And so they're saying that that same protection should exist for this mask mandate as it regards to business. And, and this, the, the way that this is going to be argued, I'm sure, is going to be more on the business side of it than the personal side. But nonetheless, the second argument that's sort of a part of this larger argument of it being illegally adopted, that's more along the lines with what I was saying the other day on the show a, a, about a week ago. Well, 
yeah, about a week ago on Thursday, uh, this the Thursday before last, man, I'm getting my days and nights mixed up. Because <laughs> I'm getting my days of the week mixed up at least just because uh, I was off for a week and I'm just not used to not doing shows. Uh, but yeah, the last time that we met, I actually did a segment about this, and, and this is the argument that sort of coincides with what I was telling you earlier, which is, uh, and this is a uh, this is essentially how their attorney broke it down. The lawsuit argues that while the governor has certain emergency powers, it says there is, quote, no statutory authority that would allow the governor to mandate the wearing of masks, quote, under any circumstances. And that's essentially the argument that I was making, that yes, the governor does have emergency powers. And under those emergency powers, there are things that I may not like, but things that Governor Ivey does indeed have the power to do. Mandating masks for every private citizen that happens to be moving about in a public space is not one of them. Now, granted, the wording is vague, and we went over that in that segment, but not vague enough that it just leaves it open to the governor to do whatever they want. And in fact, when the governor did cite her legal authority in the order, you may recall that the law that she cited had nothing to do with making private citizens wearing masks. It had to do with the governor having the authority to inspect, for example, by governor, I mean by extension, not the office of the governor itself, but the, uh, the state board of health. Uh, they have the authority to inspect things like restaurants and cafeterias. There was nothing in there that even remotely example, uh, even remotely resembled in any way a blanket mask mandate for every citizen moving about in the public sphere. That's just simply not something that was in there. They cited a completely unrelated law to that. But nonetheless, that's where we are right now, and I imagine that's pretty much how their argument is going to play out. Uh, the second argument that it makes, the second main argument that this particular lawsuit makes is that it argues that co the connected jail time constitutes a deprivation of liberty. Now, personally, I think this is the weaker legal argument. And I'm not an attorney. I'm just going by what I do know about the law and, and what I've read in other similar cases. It seems what they're going for is some type of constitutional violation that they're essentially going to say that you have deprived us of liberty to move about without the mask and, and enforcing this with a penalty that could potentially, not necessarily, but could potentially include jail time, then that's going to be a violation of liberty. I see this as a very difficult legal argument to make. I think they're going to primarily rely on the first two arguments, uh, the, the ones that are derived from the mandate was illegally put together. And, and by the way, there's a quote from the attorney that leads me to believe that I am correct in that assessment. But the secondary argument is still a good one to make. I don't think it's actually going to go anywhere, but it is interesting. And I do want to see how it plays out because the deprivation of liberty, it's just flimsy since it's done at the state level. Because there has, and this has been a big debate within the legal scholarship of our country for literally decades, about a century now, is about where that line on the Tenth Amendment really starts and stops. And you can't, you know, there, there was actually a Supreme Court case, uh, I want to say either this year or last year, that dealt directly with the Second Amendment and whether or not the Second Amendment does apply to the states. Now, this shocks some people just because guns happens to be where it is, is commonly argued, but I actually believe that this is incorrect. I, I'm not an incorporationalist. I think that we have a Tenth Amendment for a reason. You cannot apply 
the Bill of Rights or the Constitution to the states. That was never the design. The states were supposed to be sovereign and self-governing, and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were specifically supposed to be a shackle on the federal government, not the state government. But without going into all the details on that, because of that, because of the idea of federalism, I think the fact that this is something that is A, done on the state level, and B, even if it were something at the federal level, it would be a lot harder to prove that a mask mandate in the time of a pandemic is something that is a deprivation of liberty. I think that they're going to have a very uphill battle on that one. Now, I will say this. The only thing that may be... Because right now they're arguing this in the realm of theory, essentially. They are arguing this case in the realm of theory, but if there were a case that actually took place to where somebody was jailed and arrested and detained without their consent for not having a mask or not following the mask mandate as the governor prescribed, if that were to take place and it was no longer just existing in the realm of theory, then you might have a better case. And the reason that I say that is, is because there is such a thing as false imprisonment. Now, false imprisonment happens when a citizen, whether they are a law enforcement officer or some kind of person charged with enforcing the law or not, imprisons somebody without just cause. And if you could make the argument that the mask mandate was made illegally and that the governor didn't have authority to do that, and on top of that, made the argument that there was a false imprisonment, that there was a violation of rights that took place because that person was imprisoned against their will for something that was not a crime and should not have been considered a law in the books. I think that that's a, again, this is the reason I say the second half of this argument is pretty flimsy. I think that's a stronger case if you're no longer dealing with something just in the theoretical realm, that you're dealing with an actual person who was jailed for a law that should not have ever been allowed to be on the books. But I still somewhat doubt the fact that a law enforcement officer, especially one that is essentially operating in good faith, could be called into question if he just was obeying the law as he saw it. I think there's a good faith argument to be made there, and I just don't think that that particular part of the argument is going to go anywhere. Now, I think it's actually arguably the more important side of it. But from a legal perspective, I doubt that they have much of a case on that one. By the way, the idea that they're going to lean more on that first half of the lawsuit, that they're going to lean heavy on the procedural issue, that's something that is kind of confirmed by a statement that was made by Seth Ashmore, who is the attorney on the this particular lawsuit for the plaintiff. So Ashmore said, quote, there's been such a rapid fire of orders coming out of Montgomery that the general public has whiplash. It's just as easy to make the laws through the legislative process or the Alabama Administrative Procedures Act than shortcutting it. Now, this is the argument that I've been making from the very beginning. And I said, right when this whole thing exploded and everybody started talking about it, that everybody's having the wrong discussion. And I stand by that sentiment. Because everybody's discussing whether or not masks are effective or not, which, I mean, there are good points on both sides of that argument. The scientists themselves haven't really come to any kind of consistent. There's a study that comes out that says they're very effective. There's another study that comes out that shows that they're not effective. And then another one that says that they are effective and not effective. And they do this back and forth thing uh, to where you could say that the mask thing is an open question. That's not the right discussion to be having right now. The right discussion is, did the governor of the state of Alabama, did Dr. Scott, did they violate their oaths of office by doing something illegal and issuing a mandate illegally, which was outside their authority to do? That is the important question. 
And when it comes to this, because of course I believe that that is the case, but even if you are somebody that is in favor of a mandatory mask ordinance, now I'm not, but that's not because I doubt the effectiveness of masks. That's because I doubt whether or not, you know, I, I don't believe in government mandates. I don't think that they help. I don't think there's been any evidence to show that they've helped, whether you're talking about shutdowns or any of the other things that have come out beforehand. I don't think that mandating things from the government that the citizens must do has helped in any way. But even if I did, right here, you can go past that point of contention and get right to the heart of the issue, which is, look, whether or not I agree with the mask mandate or not, Governor Ivey shouldn't have done it if she didn't have the authority to do so. Whether it was an emergency or not, whether she thought time is of the essence or not, doesn't matter. She has to do it the right way. Those laws are put in place to protect everybody. You know, maybe you assume that in this particular instance, Kay Ivey was operating in good faith, that she was doing the absolute best that she could, that she was making a difficult decision in a difficult time, which I think is a fair statement to make. Doesn't matter. She still has to do it by the law. Because what happens when there's a tyrant in office? What happens when there's somebody that specifically does want to curtail your liberties? Don't you think that they would use basically an unlimited power that they can do virtually anything they want and just make up powers of the governor out of whole cloth like Co Governor Ivy did here? Don't you think that they would do that if they could? Don't you think they'd take advantage of that? Whether or not the person in office did quote-unquote the right thing is really a moot point. The question is, did they follow the rules while doing it? Now, we can argue on the merits of it after that, but until we've had that discussion, none of this other stuff makes a difference. Now, along those same kinds of lines, there is a new order that has been put out, not by the governor, but by the state of Alabama in general, by the ABC board, so the Alabama Beverage Control, that's the people that run liquor licenses, uh, your ABC stores. I know, I think it's super weird that Alabama actually owns liquor stores too. That's a very odd thing to me. I, I don't know why we're in the alcohol business, but we are for some reason. Uh, but the ABC board voted unanimously to cut off all on-premise alcohol sales by 11 p.m. with the understanding that they will be consumed by 11.30. So basically, if you are a bar or any place that serves alcohol in a public venue, by the way, as far as I understand it, I could be wrong here, but as far as I understand it or what I've read of the bill, this would apply to any venue in the state of Alabama that serves alcohol. Now, I used to be a bartender. I know that shocks people because I'm also a minister, but I mean, it wasn't like a, a full-time gig or anything, but you know, going through college, I, I was a bartender part-time at a hotel. And... It's interesting because I'm like, well, would the hotel have to cut people off at 11 and, and then, uh, you know, stop at 1130? Because, you know, personally, our bar closed at, I think, 10, if I'm not, if I'm remembering that correctly. So it wouldn't have affected that particular hotel bar. But there are hotel bars that stay open significantly later than that. So even though the person is there in the hotel, would they have to cut it off? I didn't see an exemption for that, so I assume so. And what if you're at a restaurant that's, that's more like a restaurant and bar as opposed to a bar and restaurant? Because there's a lot of bars that also serve food, but there's also many more. I would say the vast majority of restaurants that happen to serve alcohol, uh, if they are one of those places that just stays open really late, granted, I assume that those are, are far less common because usually if you're staying open past 11 p.m., 
that's usually a bar that has a restaurant in it as opposed to a restaurant that has a bar in it. Normally, those are primarily bars. But nonetheless, this is the way that they voted, and, and you have to have the alcohol consumed by 1130. This is a quote from ABC administrator Mac Gibson, who said it was, quote, wait, a, a way to mitigate the difference between a complete shutdown and, and uh, serving alcohol until 2 p.m. It won't make everybody happy because there are bars that depend on that late night trade, but, by, but a bar, by definition, is a congregation of people. So here's my question. Why mitigate it all? According to your statement, you're saying that it is very, very difficult for bars to maintain six feet difference. All right, well, I don't understand this. Because either, if that's the case, you're saying, well, we know that that risk is there and they probably can't really social distance, so we'll just let them do what they want. Or, okay, well, they can't social distance, ergo, we have to shut them down. Now, obviously, I'm not in favor of shutting them down. I want, them, I want the government to stay out of it. However... I at least understand the approach of, well, people are going to congregate there, and by definition, a bar is a congregation of people, and they can't really maintain six feet of distance, so we've got to shut them down. I don't agree with that approach. But honestly, that makes more sense to me than these goofy half measures. Like, shutting it down at 11 p.m.? Well, if it's a congregation of people and you're saying that they, they can't distance six feet, what difference does it make when they shut down? That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't see how that's doing anything to help stop the virus. And then Gibson also said, quote, ingestion of alcohol generally leads to higher levels of fat fraternization. Okay, well, that is true. I mean, it'd be impossible to argue against that. I don't think that... <laughs> I don't think Administrator Gibson is wrong. I mean, anybody that's ever been in a college town uh, and, and been in a college bar knows that uh, the more alcohol a person has in them, the more likely they are to, you know, go hit on members of the opposite sex or be super friendly with people, talk to people. There's some people that get very handsy, and I'm not even talking about it in a sexual way. Like, uh, I've had fraternity brothers that, like, there's nothing they want more than a hug once they've had a few in them. Like, that just happens. Uh, <laughs> one time at an Auburn game, I actually had a fraternity brother who, frankly, had been... Uh, He'd been pre-gaming pretty hard at this point, <laughs> literally, and he's a big dude, uh, literally just pick me up in his arms when Auburn scored a touchdown that one time, which I was not expecting because, you know, I'm a big dude myself and, you know, 6'3 and, and weighing about 190, 180 pounds, something like that. He just swept me right off my feet and picked me up, which was uh, a little disconcerting, I'm not going to lie, but, you know, that plays at that point. He's not wrong about that that alcohol does make people a little bit more apt to uh, not really regard... I mean, it, it inhibits your senses, it inhibits your judgment, it impairs your judgment. That's why we don't let people drive when they're drunk. And so, of course, people are going to ne necessarily be less cautious when they're consuming alcohol. So even if you're somebody that is real concerned about keeping a six-foot distance normally... Once you've had a few in you, you're a little bit inebriated, you're probably not as concerned about that because you're less cautious. It, it drives back those inhibitions. Now, remember, I'm saying all this based on observation because I've actually never drank anything in my life. But nonetheless, you know, he's not wrong on that. But again, my question goes back to then why the half measure? If that is the case, do we think that people are not more likely to fraternize with one another when they've had a few in them before 11 p.m.? Because 
Granted, most of the action in Auburn when I was in college did take place after 11 p.m. I mean, most of us didn't go to bed till 2 or 3 in the morning. That's just the way it was in a college town. Uh, but the thing that is baffling is, like, do they think that alcohol doesn't have that effect if they're drinking before 11? It, it, it really is strange. I don't see how this makes any sense whatsoever. If you're worried about alcohol having the effect on people, which, you know, I admit that it does, uh, being a little bit more friendly, being a little more apt to not social distance, then why are you allowing alcohol to be sold anywhere at any time? Why, why don't we just close down the ABC stores and close down everything and make sure that nobody has alcohol because, God forbid it, it might lead them to not social distance? Well, okay, well, if that's the case, why are we serving alcohol in the first place? I don't understand this. Look, either the, the virus is going to be this catastrophic event or, or we need to start getting back to normal. Look, you can't control people. That's really what this all boils down to. There are going to be people that get drunk, and because they get drunk, make dumb decisions, don't social distance, do things that they wouldn't normally do. But the idea that cutting somebody off at 11 p.m., at least for on-site consumption is somehow going to mitigate that is just childish and stupid. Like, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it at some point. They're either going to drink before 11 p.m., or they're going to purchase alcohol at a place where they can drink it afterward. And by that, I mean, you know, just go to the ABC store, buy it at like, you know, 7 at night, and then, you know, have enough to last them until whenever they want to. If alcohol is a risk factor then why are we allowing anyone to consume alcohol at this point? Now, I don't want them to stop people from drinking it. I'm saying that their own logic is inconsistent. Frankly, I don't care. I don't care whether this goes into effect. It doesn't affect my life in any way, at least in the sense that I don't drink. Ergo, I don't, and I haven't, you know, I don't really go out to restaurants very often either uh, now that the apocalypse is upon us. But my point in all of that is, if that is the logic, if, if we're saying that alcohol is a danger and people might get coronavirus because of this, then why are we consuming alcohol? I just don't understand it. E either, make up your minds here. Either alcohol is something that is, it makes you inherently more dangerous when it comes to coronavirus, or it doesn't. This will we'll serve it to a certain point, and then at a certain point in the night, we're not. It's just dumb. It's exactly the same thing. And here's the other argument, because at least with other measures, like with the mask mandate, for example, I don't agree with the mask mandate, and I don't agree with government forcing that on somebody, but at least it makes sense to me. At least I can understand, okay, I don't agree with the mask mandate, but at the same time, I can see how maybe theoretically, whether or not it actually works in practice or not remains to be seen, but at least theoretically, I can look at it and go, all right, well, I can see how that might stop the spread. But this doesn't. I don't see how this would stop the spread at all. In fact, if anything, it might make it worse. I made this exact same argument when Mayor Reed here in Montgomery put a curfew on the city. Anytime you compress the amount of time people can go to a certain point, and the vast majority of them, I mean, it might discourage a handful of them, from going there, but the vast majority of them are going to continue to go to that location, what is that going to do? It's going to mean there is a higher concentration of people in that location in the now limited time slot that they have. So if you have a, per if you have a group of, you know, 100 people that were going to go to one particular bar 
and now that bar is not going to serve alcohol after 11 p.m., what are they going to do? They're going to all go at the same time before 11 p.m. This is an incredibly stupid thing to do because by the admission of the ABC administrator, Matt Gibson, that we just read, it's very hard for bars to maintain social distancing and people generally don't. Okay, I agree. I, I understand why that's a problem. What happens when all of them show up at the same time in a place that's hard to social distance? What do you think the result is going to be? Not only does this not help stop the spread of coronavirus, it actually facilitates it. I don't understand the sheer stupidity of some of the people in our state government. I, I don't understand, like, I'm just a radio guy. I don't understand how I can understand all of this and these people whose jobs it is to do these kinds of things they don't get it. Did, did they not think through that scenario? I, I'm just I'm completely at a loss. But I will say that the one good thing that has come out of this whole thing is uh, some of the memes have been pretty good. And I want to share with you right now my favorite one uh, featuring Shaquille O'Neal. So you see this. Uh, for those of you who can't see, it says COVID waiting <laughs> until 1 p.m. 11 p.m. to come out. And so you see Shaq hiding behind the tree. <laughs> I got to tell you, like some of the coronavirus memes have been really good, but it, it, it does illustrate the point. Like, do they think that the virus is somehow not going to come out, at, you know, before 11 p.m., that it's just going to hide out until 11 and then it's going to start circulating? No, this is absolute lunacy. It's a goofy meme, and I know that, but it actually does illustrate the point pretty darn well. The virus, you're no more susceptible to the virus after 11 than you are before 11. And so the half measure thing just doesn't make sense. It's just annoying to people is all it is. And furthermore, I have to say though, this has got to be the smartest virus. This has got to be bar none without exception, the smartest virus we have ever had to face. I mean, this thing knows the difference between a hardware store and a, like a local mom-and-pop clothing store. It knows if it's in Lowe's not to mess with you, but if you're in a mom-and-pop clothing store with less people, the virus can get you there for some reason. Uh, it knows the difference between, for example, a, a protest that's going on in support of Black Lives Matter and a protest that's going on in support of reopening. Those are very, very dangerous and should be stayed away from. But if you're if you're protesting in support of Black Lives Matter, then the virus knows, hey, I'm going to stand off. It's the first politically correct virus we've ever seen. This thing is incredibly intelligent. It also knows the difference between, for example, a big box store like a, a Walmart or something like that, and school or church. It knows in school and church the virus can get you, but it knows if you're in a Walmart, oh, it's got to leave you alone. It's got to leave you alone when there's a delivery person coming your way. Like, it, it just, somehow this virus knows all of these things. And uh, it, you know, also amazingly, it knows the difference, for example, in a funeral and a George Floyd funeral. Funerals, no, if you had a loved one or a, a close family friend that died, can't attend that, can't have a funeral, it's just too dangerous right now. But if it's a funeral for George Floyd, yeah, we can have several thousand people meet up and, and huddle together in a small room. And what, he's up to five or six funerals, I think, last time I checked, all over the country. If it's a George Floyd funeral, oh yeah, cram them in as tight as you can, as much as you can. 
Uh, but they're all wearing masks, so it's perfectly safe, but you can't have more than 10 people at a funeral for your grandmother that just passed away. <laughs> the mental gymnastics you have to do to arrive anywhere within the same universe of this line of thinking is ridiculous. This thing is basically the Sharknado of viruses. Like, you, if you've ever seen the movie Sharknado, and by the way, the movie knows it's ridiculous, They it knows that it's stupid, it's playing up to that, it's basically a parody of itself, which is honestly kind of funny. Um, like, th at one point, there's like, th there's sharks in space? That doesn't even make sense. And they're like, we're just making this up as we go along. It's the same kind of thing. Like, the coronavirus is the Sharknado of viruses. It does whatever it needs to do to make you comply with whatever you know, ridiculous thing that, that whoever, whatever government bureaucrat came up with that morning. The virus just molds and adjusts to whatever we need it to do now. And believe you me, if, if there is political hay to be made, that is going to be the number one deciding factor between whether or not the virus can do this or can't do that. It's so abundantly transparent. But the, the real question, because I, I think this kind of ties everything back together. Why do people do this? Why is it that people in our government do things like the ABC board here that, that makes no sense in response to the virus? I think there's a couple of contributing factors to this. Chiefest among them, frankly, I think is they want to be able to say that they did something. And from a governmental standpoint, you kind of understand why. Because if something happens... You as a government official or a bureaucrat or, or whatever else, you want to be able to go to people and say, well, I did X, X, and X during this crisis, and that's why you should vote for me, or that's why you should want me to be in the position that I'm in. And by the way, businesses do have a vested interest in this as well. They have to say, well, we did X, X, and X, and that's going to keep the, uh, the lawyers off our backs. Same kind of thing. They have to say, well, we did all of these things, ergo you can't hold us legally responsible. Basically, it's the same argument, just manifested in a different way. That both private businesses and, in this case, government influences, they're, what they're trying to do is keep people from being mad at them. And so they think that if they can do something, whether it helps or not, Mayor Reed's the perfect example of this with that idiotic curfew that he put into place. Well, at least I can say I did something. Did the something work? Well, not really. Did I think it was going to work? Not really. But at least I can say I did something. It's a panacea. Well, actually, that's not even the correct word. It's a, it's a placebo. It's basically something that I can say to people, I can say to people that support me to make them think that I actually did something worthwhile even though I didn't. That's how this works. And I think people like the ABC board are in a similar position. They're just trying to come up with a way to justify their phony baloney jobs. And so, and, and by the way, I don't hate the guys up at the ABC board. In fact, I've done interviews with them. A, a, a good friend of mine was one that actually sat on the ABC board at one point. And so I have no animosity towards them, though I have to say that uh, Gibbons, uh, or sorry, Gibson, <laughs> the, the rationale behind this doesn't make any sense on that. Um, but ultimately, for, for businesses, it comes down to legal liability. For politicians, they want to be able to, to have something to throw in their campaign ad. But it kind of goes back to a difference in Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, Herbert Hoover is actually somebody who was a, a, who worked for the Coolidge administration. And he was somebody that, you know, was very important in the Coolidge administration and then was elected president after Calvin Coolidge decided not to run for a second term. Because uh, he took over for Warren G. Harding in his first term. And so I think Coolidge served in the White House for only six years. So he, he won re-election, but then after the loss of his son, he didn't really want to didn't really want to pursue another office. And so if you look at the difference between those two guys, they were wildly, wildly different, even though they happened to work together and both be Republicans and, and work in the same administration. Calvin Coolidge's thought was, we'll just basically let people handle it on their own. We're, we're going to do the best that we can to keep the government out of the people's way. And so when they had a crisis... Coolidge did the opposite of what most politicians would have done, which is cut taxes, cut spending, less government programs. Herbert Hoover did the exact opposite. He was the first president in our history to think, I'm going to spend my way out of this recession. And by the way, any modern politician that was looking at those two, that was looking at it purely through a political lens, would say, oh, Herbert Hoover did what he needed to do. Why? Because Herbert Hoover did a whole bunch of stuff that he could point to on his resume and say, see, this is what I did. This is how I responded to the recession. This is what I did to make sure that it didn't affect you. But the actual effects were Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge, the recession that hit them lasted about six months. By the time 18 months was up, people didn't even re really remember it. Herbert Hoover and the way that he reacted to that recession became what we now know today as the Great Depression that lasted for about 10 years. That's the difference. You see, most people would want to say, that, well, look at that president. He's showing leadership. He's doing something. But when it comes to government, usually, government doing very little is the best approach. And I get that, you know, from a standpoint of being able to get reelected or, or make political hay, that's not an appealing stance to take. That when somebody asks, well, what are you going to do about X catastrophe? And your response is, well, nothing. It'll work itself out. Like, that doesn't sound good on a political ad, but a lot of times it is the correct approach. And that's a great illustration of that exact thing taking place. And I'm not saying that government should do absolutely nothing. I've never said that. I think that they should do significantly less than they're doing, but I never said that government should do nothing. Ultimately, though, this is a thing of, of a bunch of politicians wanting to be able to make the case to people that they did something. And unfortunately, a lot of the American voters, they're not going to ask whether or not the something that they did actually worked or helped the situation at all. Most of them just don't research enough to actually see whether or not that, that made a difference. I think that that's the rationale behind a lot of politicians. I do think that there are some, and I think they're in the minority, but I think that there are some that they really just like feeling like they have power and control over things. You see, I, I think that at least a sliver of this decision on alcohol is that the people at the ABC board, because they wouldn't make this decision if they didn't feel that this were at least true. I don't know that it's necessarily about them feeling like they have power over people, but they believe that they have power over people. They believe that they can, through this action, because they wouldn't do it otherwise, that through this action, they genuinely believe that they can control people and they can make people not, you know, be all clumped together in bars and that kind of thing. But it's not going to work. 
if people want to buddy up in a bar, if they want to sit real close together and, uh, you know, drink until their inhibitions go away and they're not thinking about socially distancing or all that stuff, you know what? They're going to do it. Hate to tell you that they're going to do it. You can't stop them. It, they may do it before 11 p.m., but they're still going to do it. And if people don't, then they're not going to. That's why the government should stay out of it entirely. Let those people make the decisions. The ones that are being responsible, they're going to be less likely to get the virus. The ones that are not being as responsible, they may be more likely to get the virus, but that's not something you could have prevented either way. All you're doing is punishing the responsible people by making things less convenient for them. And so that's really kind of where we find ourselves here. But ultimately, it does go back to the idea of you can control what you do. You can't control what other people do. Whether you're in government or whether you're just a private citizen, that's a lesson every human being's got to learn at some point. And I wish more people did understand that now. You can control things. You can control what you do. And that's what you should primarily worry about. You can't control other people. You can try to convince them. You can talk to them about it. You can do what I do and, and try to, even on a big venue, a big platform like this with News Radio 1440, talk to them and, and try to convince them to act differently. But at the end of the day, you can't make those decisions for them. If they want to be irresponsible, they're going to be irresponsible. And not me or Governor Ivey or Scott Harris or uh, Matt Gibson or any of the other people at the state government are going to be able to make any difference in that. We simply don't have that ability, and it's a good thing that we don't. Let people make their own decisions and reap the rewards or the consequences of those decisions. It's just that simple. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. Hey, where are you going? Champ? Slugger? Hey, cowboy. Where are you going? Where are you going? I'm going out! This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us this evening. And a couple of really odd stories. We're going to go through these kind of quickly because there's not a whole lot of commentary to say. I just needed to make you aware of them. And, and one of them's really sad. The U.S. Space and Rocket Center could close permanently due to a lack of money. This is a story via the Associated Press. The U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville says it could be forced to close permanently because of the coronavirus pandemic. It's Alabama's top paid tourist attraction. Now, I didn't know that, but it really doesn't surprise me. I mean, uh, first of all, it's just closer to the rest of the country. Like, it's, it's close to Tennessee. It's uh, equidistant between, or relatively equidistant between Georgia and Mississippi. I figured Gulf Shores would be it, but maybe they're talking about single attraction as, pro, as opposed to just beaches in general. Anyway, so that's uh, how the story starts, and it continues on. It has launched a GoFundMe campaign to raise $1.5 million it says it needs. Otherwise, it is possible the U.S. Space and Rocket Center could close at the end of October. The U.S. Space and Rocket Center is home to Space Camp, an educational program that has attracted nearly 1 million children and adults since it began in 1982. But Space Camp is struggling after being shut down for four months because of the pandemic and having only limited space in attendance since restarting. The... Sorry, U.S. Space and Rocket Center officials say if they could meet their fundraising goal, the facility would remain open and Space Camp could return next spring. So a couple of observations, first of all. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever that Space Camp should have been closed. 
Space Camp is something that, I mean, there may be some adult version of it. In fact, I have heard that you can do something like that. But specifically, the anybody below 18, there is no reason whatsoever, none, that Space Camp should have closed. Those people are at such low risk. Now, maybe, let's say that the kids would normally be able to uh, meet an astronaut or something like that, somebody that might be at higher risk, maybe cancel that portion of it. But as far as canceling Space Camp as a whole, and by the way, I've been to Space Camp. Uh, I didn't get to go for the full week. I, I did like an abbreviated version that was like four days long. But I've been to Space Camp. Fantastic experience. I think I was like, I don't know, 11, 12, something like that. Uh, had a Just had a blast. Really, really loved it. And it's a great program. I'd recommend it to anybody that's thinking about something for their kids to do uh, at some point over the summer. It was a really, really fun event for me, and I don't see any reason with with any of the programs that were done there, because all the counselors that I knew were like college-age kids. There is no reason that this thing should have been canceled. I, I can't think of any logical reason why you would close down something with people that are just that low risk. If you're looking at the mortality rates of this thing, we have lost... For especially young children, when we're talking about children like that are not teenagers yet, so 12 and under, and, and by the way, there are kids, like I said, I myself was in this group, 12 and under that attend space camp, that's, I would assume, the primary age group that attends it, even if it's a little bit older, that's not much different. But in a country like America that has 327 million people, roughly 400,000 children of that age have come down with COVID-19 that we know of. You know how many of them have died? It's in the double digits. They haven't even hit 100 yet. The mortality rate for this thing is virtually non-existent for people there. Statistically, you would not even be able to see it on a chart. It is so tiny. It is an infinitesimally small portion of the population of, of children that get this thing and die. And by the way, for people under 18, it's not much different. And I'm talking about people that are over the age of 12 into 18. It's about the same. You don't even really get into even somewhat problematic fatality rates until you get over the age of 50. And so I, my mind is just blown. Like, I hate it for space camp. I, I hate that this happened to them. But I'm also sitting here scratching my head going, how, why would you do this? I mean, if anything especially a camp that caters specifically to kids, that would be a fantastic opportunity for kids to get out of the house at a time where they probably can't do very much around here in the summer. And, I mean, most of it takes place outside. Well, I wouldn't say most of it takes place outside. A decent portion of it does take place outside, though, at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Um, more than you would think, actually. And so I just, I'm, I'm completely blown away by the fact that they even canceled Space Camp. This is something that should be a non-issue because it should have never been shut down in the first place. But I will say just as a personal endorsement, this is one of the best things our state has going for it. Not just Space Camp itself, but the U.S. Space and Rocket Center as a whole. Uh, my family has on multiple occasions through multiple years had season passes to it, run up to Huntsville, and done some of the activities there. They actually have a, a couple rides up there. They have several IMAX theaters that you can go to. They, they've got a lot of events. That you, this is the place where the Saturn V rocket was largely put together. 
I, I mean, there's just so much quality, there, there's so much good there that it would be an absolute shame if this thing closed up, especially needlessly, for something that it really should have never happened, that should have never shut it down in the first place. So I really, really hope it pulls through because space exploration is something that is a part of America. We're explorers by nature. It's in our blood. Whether you're talking about settling a, a brand new world coming across the sea in a, you know, in a, a tiny wooden ship, that would take three and a half months and there's barely a chance you'll even survive to settle a completely unsettled land or then settling the West and, and going out to California, the whole Lewis and Clark mentality or, uh, you know, settling the Mountain West with the covered wagons and, and the prairie and, and all of those things. Like, Americans are explorers. It's who we are. And this is one small way that we as Americans, and, and specifically the state of Alabama, got to contribute to instilling that explorer American spirit in the hearts of young Americans. I'm so proud of that. I love that. And not to mention, I mean, that there's other things that this thing has done too. Uh, this is really cool. I've actually got to sit in Han Solo's seat in the Millennium Falcon. Because occasionally what the Space and Rocket Center does is they will bring these sort of traveling exhibits, uh, different, they'll do some kind of setup for. So there's a picture of me sitting in the Millennium Falcon set, the, the, the actual set that they used to film the movie. I'm sitting in Han Solo's seat, and it's at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center because they did that. They actually had it to where you could go in there. They had a big Star Wars thing. Uh, another one that they did, Chronicles of Narnia, which you know is my favorite book series. C.S. Lewis is my favorite author. Uh, they had that display there where you could actually go there and hold one of the props of Peter's swords. You could actually go and see C.S. Lewis's real desk. And so they just have cool little things like that, great things for families to do. There is so much value to this thing, and I would just hate to see it fall through for something as idiotic as canceling Space Camp for, you know, when, when they didn't need to. It was completely unnecessary. If anything, their revenue should have been up this year because all the parents that want to get their kids out of the house for a week or two. Uh, but, but I digress. I really do hope it pulls through, you know, Godspeed to all of you up there. I, I completely disagree with the decision to cancel space camp, but you know, I, I hope that this thing all gets resolved because it would be a crying shame to see this thing go away. It's such an asset to our state. Uh, another one that's really, really strange. People in Alabama have been receiving bags of seeds from China in the mail. For somebody like me that has the gift of gab and talks for a living, being at a loss for words is a very unsettling feeling. I don't understand why China would be sending us these seeds, but the Commissioner of Agriculture thought it was important enough to speak about it. This is Commissioner of Agriculture Rick Pate, who said, quote, We urge all residents to be on the lookout for similar packages. These seeds could be invasive or harmful to livestock. So it's, you know, they're probably not like poisoned or anything. But if it is an invasive species, that could be a real problem for the ecological makeup of the state of Alabama or America as a whole. I mean, keep in mind, a great example of an invasive species that everybody knows is kudzu. When they started bringing kudzu into the state, now they did it intentionally. They just, they thought it would serve a different purpose. They didn't count on it having such a long growing season because of our warm climate. And, uh, I mean, anybody in the South could tell you that thing is a menace. And so, <laughs> uh, 
hopefully it's a, like nobody actually plants these things and it becomes an invasive species. I really hope that that does not take place. But I don't know. It's just so odd that uh, Alabamians in specifically, and there's like five or six other states where this has happened too, they're just receiving random bags of seeds from Chinese people. I have no idea. Uh, it's really, really odd. Harmful to livestock. Honestly, I'm not sure about that, which is odd because typically I tend to be more knowledgeable about the livestock than the uh, the seeds. Maybe they're worried about it being foreign and, and being able to upset their stomach or be you know toxic or, or the livestock be allergic to it. I don't know. But anyway, so that's a really, really odd one. And the Alabama Department of Agriculture and Industry said that anyone receiving such package should either, uh, these are the steps you need to take. Not plant the seeds, and if they are in a sealed package, leave it sealed. And it says do not dispose of the seeds. So in other words, if this thing shows up, don't throw it away. If you happen to get one of these packages, don't just toss it in the garbage because there's always a chance it'll wind up in a landfill. And what's at the bottom of landfill? Soil. So if these seeds get out, and this is an invasive species then throwing them away might be the worst thing that you could do because there's a chance if it's some kind of weed or something like that that has a, a really hardy lifestyle, I mean, that, that could be the catalyst that gets this species started here in America. So whatever you do, don't throw the seeds away. I mean, maybe even burn them, but I, I'm not suggesting that. Listen to what the <laughs> Department of Ag and Industry is telling you. I'm not suggesting you need to do that. I'm just saying that uh, even that would be better than just throwing them in the garbage can because that could, you know, result in something really, really terrible happening. Uh, and then it also says, report suspicious seed deliveries to the USDA Animal Plant and Health Inspection Service and maintain the seed and packaging until the USDA provides further instructions. They may be used as evidence. Now, again, I have no idea why China is doing this. I don't know if it's like the Chinese government or it's a bunch of random Chinese citizens that are just pulling pranks. Relations between America and China have been pretty bad recently. I don't know if you've seen, but there's been sort of a, I don't know, a weird spitting contest between President Trump and President Ping, or as I like to call him, President Eleven, because his name is XI, so President Eleven. They've been closing each other's embassies and, like, threatening to close other embassies. It's been a really weird back and forth, and it, it's something that's kind of happened under the radar. It hasn't really been in the news much, but... Uh, Chinese and American relations have been especially hostile over the past few months. And I mean, that makes sense because, you know, China tried to kill us. Uh, I, probably not intentionally, like this virus getting loose is not something they intended to do. I don't think that it was like a weaponized virus or anything. But, you know, their negligence did lead to this thing becoming a pandemic. And, and President Trump is right to place the blame squarely at their feet. And so... But as you can imagine, that has also resulted in China not being all that friendly towards us. Maybe this is, I don't know, a small way of them trying to get revenge. I don't know. But either way, they could be dangerous. You know, follow the instructions, call the USDA, call the Alabama Department of, of Ag and Industry, get in touch with somebody that can actually handle this. Don't just toss them out. Anyway, um, oh, I guess it's time for our daily dose of stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we go to Jerry Nadler. Now, Jerry Nadler had a internet journalist, basically, somebody that is, is known for doing uh, interviews on the web, and, and this is directly from his Twitter, 
Jerry Nadler had some interesting comments to make about Antifa. Watch. It is true. There's violence across the whole country. Do you disavow the violence from Antifa? That's happening in Portland right now? There's that's, riots. That's, in... that's a myth that's being spread only in Washington, D.C. About Antifa in Portland? Yes. It's Sir, there's, there's videos everywhere online. There's fires and riots. There's th they're throwing fireworks at uh, federal officers. DHS is there. Look online. It gets crazy, Mr. Nadler. <laughs> I mean, Jerry Nadler living in his own little fantasy world asserting that Antifa is a myth somehow. Now, I'm, to give Nadler as much grace as humanly possible, sometimes it's not a wise idea to just because people from the other side of the aisle, whether it's, you know, media or other people, you know, political opponents, people that have something to gain from it, when they say something there's a good reason not to automatically assume that it is correct. But at this point, saying that Antifa and the violence in Portland is a myth? I mean, has this guy just been watching absolutely no news for the past, I don't know, three weeks? Granted, in Seattle, they did, you know, have the autonomous zone where they just took over a giant block of the city. But Portland, really since then, and even a little bit before, has been involved in these kinds of crazy protests. And what's nuts is a whole lot of people now are trying to make the case that, well, the protesters are, are there trying to protest the occupation of their city and they don't like the federal agents being there. Full disclosure, I'm pretty hesitant about that as well. I mean, being somebody that is a, a very libertarian-leaning, who doesn't like the federal government, I mean, I'm, I'm not only libertarian-leaning, I'm also a federalist, and I don't like the idea of federal agents showing up to enforce local laws. That's not something that I am fond of. I don't think that this is the right way to handle it. But regardless of where you stand on that issue, you can't say that there's no violence. The reason that those federal agents are there is because there was violence to begin with. Let's talk about cause and effect here. It's not as though the federal agent showed up and then all of a sudden protests started, and the protests started getting violent. No, the protests were already violent, which is the reason the federal agents showed up. Now, you can say that that's not the right approach to it, and frankly, I kind of agree with you. I don't think that that was the right way to handle it. However, whether I agree with it or not, I acknowledge that it was not the protesters that are some kind of victim here, that they were just doing nothing wrong and there was no violence happening, and then all of a sudden the federal agent showed up and, okay, now we've got to get violent. Now, even if that were the story, still doesn't excuse the violence. But that's the narrative that the left is running with. But Nadler's just saying, the whole thing's a hoax. Whole thing's just a myth. You just imagine the whole thing. It's not really happening. But like the journalist there in that video points out, yeah, it kind of is, and it's not just an isolated incident here or there. There's like hours and hours of footage of people throwing fireworks at cops, setting fires to build. You know what? I don't even have to describe it. We'll just watch. What was a largely peaceful protest has escalated into violence. The main battle line is here outside the federal courthouse. 
protesters unable to pull down the new fence throw fireworks over. Tear gas is fired back. Many here are prepared for this. But as federal agents emerge in their dozens, those in gas masks run too. Rubber bullets fired into the darkness. It's quite frightening. Don't worry, it's all imagination. None of it's real. Well, that punch would have really hurt if it really happened. Good thing you called just a hit. Some protesters have been violent, but there's been peaceful pushback too. Like this woman wearing nothing but a mask and a hat, confronting heavily armed agents. Apparently, that's a mystery. Now they're attacking someone in a wheelchair. Do you think this violence is undermining your cause? You know what? I don't, I don't believe in violence at all, but. Unfortunately, you know, you gotta make noise, right? I haven't seen anyone get hurt or killed here, right? I see some fireworks. I see some people making a lot of, like, rackets. You're gonna rip me off. What are you saying, bro? You're gonna get What's up, bro? Well, now that last clip is by far the worst one. You can see there, like, I'm pretty sure that that guy that just got kicked in the head, and I don't even know if that dude's still alive anymore. I mean, he was not moving, and then after already not moving and had his head hit the pavement, that guy kicks him in the face. Like, I don't know if he's still breathing at this point. Um, I'd have to look that up, but... I imagine that he is not very comforted by Jerry Nadler's assertion that it's all a myth. It's, it's only being spread in Washington, D.C. There's nothing to it. It's all just an elaborate conservative hoax. It's the, uh, as the Clintons made famous, you know, the, the vast right-wing conspiracy. Yet none of that's happening. It's all in your head. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. Move along. I don't know what kind of cocaine Jerry Nadler is on, but evidently it's some darn good stuff because if you can look at that and go, ah, oh, it's all a myth, it's a hoax, don't worry about it. This is a crazy person. Either that or he's he hasn't turned on the news in two weeks or three weeks. Well, again, this, this violence has been going on for weeks now. But all of this has been happening. Somehow it's all just a, a construction, an imaginary thing that has been put together by a bunch of evil, evil conservatives that just want to make the case that there's violent protests going out there to justify Donald Trump sending in federal troops. I'm not trying to justify Donald Trump sending in federal troops. Now, granted, I understand the instinct that President Trump is looking at this and going, yeah, we got to do something. I mean, we've got American citizens being attacked in the streets and nothing happening to them. Yeah, we've got to do something about that. Like, I, I understand the instinct. Don't get me wrong. 
I understand the intention. I think the intention is good. I don't think that Donald Trump's trying to, you know, take over the city or anything like that. I don't believe that for an instant, which is the way that this is usually being cast by the left. But I do believe the violence is happening. Like, I do think it's actually there, unlike Jerry Nadler, who seems to think that this is just some kind of crazy fever dream that has been put together by the right to be able to justify something. I'm not trying to justify what Trump's doing at all. I don't think that's the right way to handle it. I think that even if you were going to send in federal troops, I don't like the sort of cloak and dagger stuff where they're just going in and picking up people that are breaking laws and bringing them back to a, the, the federal courthouse there. But the idea that this is all in people's heads and there aren't, you know, violent protesters, you saw one in the, the clip there actually saying that the violence is justified and, well, we've got to make some noise. This is insane. We're living in a fantasy world where the left is telling us that we can't trust our own eyes and, and things that we have hours and hours of video footage that we can watch and see all of it happening. Not real. Sherry Nadler's level of denial is just absolutely astounding. I can understand initial skepticism of it. And considering that we have whole news networks dedicated to selling you confirmation bias, if you've just been watching MSNBC or CNN, maybe I could kind of see why you don't think that there is anything going on, because they're probably not showing you that content. But at this point, the mountain of evidence is overwhelming. Right now, Jerry Nadler saying that this whole thing is a myth? I mean, at least Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic in Harry Potter, at the end of uh, Order of the Phoenix, once he saw Voldemort actually attacking people in the Ministry of Magic, he had to go, okay, I guess he's back. Like, at a certain point, you have to, <laughs> you have to let go of the denial. But even Minister Fudge... I know, Minister Fudge sounds like a, a candy of some kind. Uh, but even Minister Fudge, like, when confronted with that, had to go, okay, it's, it's not a myth. Voldemort really has been resurrected. Jerry Nadler seems to be perfectly content with, with having that surrounding him and being like, nope, I don't care how much evidence there is for it. It's all just a myth. It's only being spread in D.C. Like, the, the spread in D.C. line is weird, too, because if it is some kind of vast conspiracy, wouldn't you think it's being spread in places other than D.C.? Uh, well, I mean, you can see why Jerry Nadler is definitely the, the source of the Daily Dose of Stupid for today. But I want you to imagine this. I'll leave this as sort of the, the parting thought here. Can you imagine how the media and the left would have reacted if, after Charlottesville, President Trump had said, oh, the, the idea that there were Nazis down there or white supremacists down there, that's just a myth. Remember that they got angry for him trying to make a point about there being some good people down there, not talking about the Nazis, talking about people that were there to protest the statues being taken down. And they were mad that he didn't, de he didn't denounce the alt-right fast enough, which, by the way, that was a fair criticism. That was one that I particularly said that he was wrong on to wait two or three days before denouncing it. That was a bad move by President Trump, and he should not have done it. However, we've got Jerry Nadler. If you were to switch the roles, we don't even have to imagine a what-if scenario. We have a one-to-one -one comparison here. Jerry Nadler not only saying that, uh, that he's not going to condemn the violence in, in Portland, he's saying it's not even real, it's not even happening. Can you imagine 
what would have happened if President Trump, especially considering that there was a person that actually died in that, that he had just been like, oh no, it's, it's, it's all a myth, it's fake news. They would have had a field day with that, and should have. But when Jerry Nadler says that everybody just kind of pretends like it doesn't happen, the only thing higher than Jerry Nadler's ridiculous level of absolute denial that he's living in is his waistline. <laughs> the guy's... Did you see the guy's tie in that clip? Like, his, his tie reaches below his zipper. No, not a good thing. All right, so... We're going to go ahead and go... Sorry, we're, we're going to go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775... The Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's report for this evening, it goes back to our series on 1 Samuel, and we'll be talking about that. Just to give you some setup and, and let you know where we are, remember that Saul has just come back from fighting the Amalekites. He has disobeyed God. He has refused to do what God told him to do, which is to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, leave nothing, don't, you know, destroy the livestock, destroy their possessions, their gold, their spoil, everything— you don't take anything with you. You basically burn it all. I want them wiped off the face of the earth. And part of that does sound just cruel and, and spiteful, but you have to remember part of the reason that God did this to, to those people in, in general is because he didn't want word going out that his people were, you know, sort of uh, pillaging other villages and that they were destroying it so that they could get gain. He specifically wanted them to destroy these societies that had been engaging in sinful acts like uh, destroying and, and killing children as sacrifices to their pagan gods and all these other things. He wanted them to be made an example of, and he wanted a message to be sent that this isn't about getting stuff for us. This is about them doing something that is wrong and us acting as God's arm to punish them for that. It's not about getting stuff. It's not about getting livestock. It's not about taking their gold and, and taking their king captive and all this stuff. All this is about is punishing them, and that's what God wanted. Saul didn't do that. Saul brought back the animals. He brought back the livestock, and he's already had this back and forth going with Samuel where he's denied it, said, no, no, I, I did what God told me to do. I I mean, I, I like mostly did what God told me to do, and I, I destroyed all the people. I just kept the choicest livestock, and, and really I only kept the choicest livestock so that I could offer sacrifice. That's why I kept the livestock around. It wasn't for me. It wasn't for the people around me. It was so we could offer sacrifice to your God, Samuel. You know, trying very, very hard to try to explain to Samuel why completely disobeying what God told him to do was justifiable and okay. Well, see, I'm, I'm doing it for God. I'm doing it so he can have sacrifices. And this is Samuel's response. And I, I find this one of the most profound verses in all the Bible because it tells us so much about God and his nature and how he views us. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 through 23, where he says, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed the fat of rams. For rebellion is in this as excuse me. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. A couple big points to, to look at there. When he says, he, he makes the point, but I like how he starts out with a rhetorical question. And this is something that Jesus does much later. That we'll see often when a question is asked of Jesus, or there's some kind of spiritual teaching that needs to go on, that Jesus uses it as a teaching moment. He starts with a rhetorical question to get you thinking about why the answer is correct, not just tell you which answer is correct, which I think is very, very wise. Look at this first question. Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? See, that's something that gets you thinking. Because then instead of Saul doing his own thinking and, and doing what he would want if he were God, he puts himself in the position of God and then has to say, huh, would I rather somebody obey me or offer me tribute? You see, God could have asked for the bulls and goats and the various animals of the Amalekites if he wanted to. If God wanted those offerings, he could have just taken them. He doesn't need the offerings. And Saul doing this, like, it's pretty clear that he wasn't doing it to sacrifice to God. But Samuel just kind of plays along with it. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into Saul's intent, but I don't think I am based on the context surrounding the story. But even assuming that he did have good intentions, even assuming that he really did want to sacrifice to God, and that's the reason he saved these animals, even if you assume that to be true, he's saying, okay, did you think that I would want that more than you obeying me? See, if, if God had really wanted Saul to do that, he would have told him to do it. There was a, and, and this is just kind of a side effect of me growing up with my father, who was an ag teacher, there would be things I had to do around the house that he'd asked me to do, and me being the very creative person that I am, um, sometimes I, I hid, hid behind the veil of that creativity and explaining why I didn't do something I was supposed to do. And something that my dad said to me and said to, you know, probably dozens if not hundreds of other kids throughout the years is he would say, son, if I wanted you to do it that way, don't you think I would have asked you to do it that way? And this is the same thing that's going on between Saul and God right now. Basically, that's what God is saying. He's saying, look, if I wanted the sacrifices, why wouldn't I have asked you for the sacrifices? What's more important here, and this is what Samuel is driving home to Saul, this is a teaching moment for him, is obedience. Your heart was not in the right place. You didn't have a desire to do what God asked you to do. You did what you wanted. And even if you try to hide it behind the veil of trying to do something nice for God, wouldn't it make more sense? Wouldn't God want obedience more than he would want tribute? For example, you know, we'll use the example of a, a parent and child. Would you rather 
if you told your your kid to go out and and go into the gas station and and buy something for me, would you rather them come out with what you ask for, or would you rather them come out with a, a candy bar for you because they know it's your favorite? Well, you know, there's some nice sentiment there, but frankly, I'd rather you just obey and, and do what I told you to do. If I'd wanted a candy bar, I'd have sent you in there for a candy bar. You see, God is in an all-knowing position. He is the Father. He knows that it's possible that Saul could have gone to the Amalekites, destroyed everything but the livestock, and brought it back. But that's not what he asked for. And the fact that he brings back the king as well, that pretty much shows where Saul's heart really is. Because there's no way that you could even come up with a religious excuse for wanting to bring the king back and disobeying God. And because of that, Saul now finds himself in this position. And the explanation that Samuel gives to him in verse 23 is that rebellion is the same thing as the sin of divination. Now, why? Why is it that he brings that up? Why divination? That just seems like such an obscure sin. It's because that was the sin that Saul didn't like. You see, all Christians and, and all people that follow God, we have certain sins that we see as, as double super bad sins. Now, a mature and learned Christian will sort of work that out of his system the more that he walks with God, at least to some degree, but it's always going to be there. There's always one sin that just triggers our disgust factor for whatever reason. A lot of people have complained over the years that they, that a lot of Christians are particularly disgusted and, and particularly they have a stronger dislike for things like homosexuality than they do other sins. And that's, you know, not an altogether uh, completely irrational criticism there. Because there are some Christians that treat that like it's the worst thing that you can do, and that's not correct because there are tons of sexual sins out there that are just as bad. And that doesn't mean that homosexuality is not bad, it just means that uh, there, it makes sense to hold the same standard for everything that is a sin. And that's what Samuel is conveying to Saul right now. He's saying, yeah, divination, your pet sin that you, uh, or not pet sin, that would be the one that he likes to do. Uh, the sin that you have driven all of the diviners, all those with familiar spirits, all the witches out, and, and we'll actually see later in this same book that Saul was the one responsible for that. He was so averse to, he hated the sin of divination so much that one of the things that he did as king is he made sure that was not in his kingdom. When all throughout the kingdom made sure, nope, no diviners, no witches, no people with, with familiar spirits, that's going to be the sin that I persecute the most because I think it's the worst one. It's just the one that bothers me the most. And so I'm going to make sure that is not in the kingdom of Israel. And then God says, yeah, your disobedience, that was just as sinful and that hurts me just as much as you doing what you just did. That's why that's the first sin that he mentions. And I think that's a powerful message for each one of us, too. That whenever we're disobedient to God, even if it's something that we in our own head kind of think of as a little sin, to God, it's just as bad as the absolute worst sin that we, we think of. Even worse, actually, because He is a holy God and we're a flawed human being. So, if you do happen to be one of those people that think of the, the worst sin that you can do, for a lot of Christians, it's abortion, and that's the one that it is for me. That me lying to my brother or sister, or me just, you know, not being concerned for them. Because remember, not being obedient here was a sin of omission, not a sin of commission. 
And so this is Saul just not doing what God told him to do. So if it's something for us like not being kind or not living the way Christ would have or not preaching the gospel to people, to God, that's the same as the sin of abortion or murder or theft or pedophilia. Now that sounds harsh and that's because it is. That's the message that Samuel is trying to drive home here. He's saying, with all your disgust, with all your disdain for that one sin that you look at and you just, yeah, I mean, it, it makes your eyes go red and you just can't stand it, that's what your disobedience feels like to me. Saul has hurt God by disobe disobeying his word. And Samuel's trying to convey that to Saul so that he can understand what he has done. Hopefully, Hopefully, we'll never find ourselves in that position because you'll read in that same verse that because of that, he's saying, and God has rejected you as king. Now, granted, Saul has made mistakes before. Saul has not been a perfect king up until this point. In fact, he's already warned him that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him at some point. That has happened before this episode transpired. But he's saying that because of this, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, you are no longer fit to be my king. You are not fit to lead my people. It's a bad position to be in, and it's one that we have to understand that if we are in open rebellion to God, if we refuse to do the things that he asks of us, that that's the same position that we're going to find ourselves in. It's not because God wasn't patient with Saul, didn't give him multiple opportunities to correct his ways, but he saw in, in Saul a heart that does not have a desire to do what God tells him to do. And for that, he's not somebody that is fit to lead other people because remember that the purpose of a king, the purpose of a leader, the purpose of anyone in a leadership position in God's kingdom is ultimately to show other people how to obey God. And Saul can't do that anymore because he himself isn't doing it. So if we as Christians in the modern sense, living with our, our families and neighbors, if we're not obeying God, if we don't have that heart to do what God asks us to do, then we're not fit to lead other people to Christ. And so we've got to get this right. Or else our purpose, our calling, we will be rejected from that as well, just like Saul was rejected from the throne. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.